Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Come plan your dream wedding all in one day at the 17th Annual Newport Bridal Show on March 3rd. Meet with more than 80 top wedding professionals at two of Newport's most romantic venues, Rose Cliff and Ocean Cliff Mansions. Visit NewportBridalShow.net to buy your ticket today. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of CCT Live, Cape Cod Times Live Facebook broadcast brought to you every, every uh, Thursday at 9 a.m. I'm news editor Patrick Casty. I'm here with uh, reporter Kristen Young. Kristen, you cover the towns of Dennis and Yarmouth, including their shared regional school district. As we were just saying before starting here, there's always news there. Always something. Including in today's paper, um, and we'll talk about that. There's a, a lawsuit that has been now officially filed, so uh, you have a story about that that you'll talk about. We'll also talk about a uh, announcement from Cape Cod Hospital about a new partnership to, uh, to fight cancer and what to do if you see a seal hauled out on the ice uh, or on a beach this time of year. A spoiler alert here, you don't generally do anything. <laughs> it's it's kind of natural, but we'll, we'll talk about some of the calls that uh, officials have been getting about that. We'll then talk about the big story uh, in today's paper, actually two stories about new training opportunities for local police officers here on uh, the Cape and Islands. And finally, we'll look ahead at, at a story coming about a resurgence in the bald eagle population here on Cape Cod. Uh, you can take a look back at our past episodes and follow along at home by going to our website, checking out capecodtimes.com slash live, or checking us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those uh, fun social media uh, uh, avenues. Uh, Kristen, you had previously reported on uh, this uh, threatened lawsuit, I think, at the time, and, and it's been officially filed now. This is the Dennis Armith Regional School District, long history here. Uh, what, what's going on with this most recent uh, development? So the lawsuit has officially been filed. Um, as you mentioned, this is sort of the, the, the idea for this started way back January 8th. Yarmouth Selectman first talked about the idea of a lawsuit. The town announced January 17th that they had instructed their legal counsel to go ahead and file that. And now, as of Tuesday, the, the lawsuit was actually filed in Barnstable Superior Court by the town of Yarmouth against the Dennis Yarmouth Regional School District and the town of Dennis. So it does include both those parties, names them both as defendants. Um, Some and people may think that's strange to have one town in a shared regional school district sue the school district and the other town. Why are they doing it? Yeah, well, so the issue here is over the method that was used to approve a new $117 million middle school, which would be a regional school that uh, students in grades four through seven in both towns would go to. It would replace uh, Mattakees Middle School, which is in West Yarmouth, and the Nathaniel H. Wixon School, which is in South Dennis, and it would be located sort of what they said is in, in the middle site on Station Avenue. Um, but what's what the issue here is, is really the school committee's decision to use this method for approving the school that bypassed town meeting. Um, in the Dennis Yarmouth Regional School Agreement, there's a clause that says that the school district, anytime they incur capital debt, they need to allow a town, town meeting action on that. Yep. They need to follow a state law that says 
town meeting, it actually says town meeting can disapprove the incurred debt, but, but either way, it, it allows town meeting to get out there to debate the, whether this is a good thing for the town and to, to take action on whether or not it should go forward. The school committee, however, back in July of last year, made the decision to take a different route, which um, is provided for by a different section of state law that let them bypass town meeting and instead put the decision to a district-wide election. Um, their thought at the time was that a district-wide election actually would let more voters get out and have a say on the issue. Um, typically, more people turn out for a town election than, than a town meeting due to time constraints and whatnot. Um, so that was the reason they went ahead there. A lot of people said that they knew that the school would be approved if they used the district-wide election as opposed to the town meeting route. And, and they even said, you know, we knew we had a better shot that way. But there, was, there wasn't at the time, I don't remember, and maybe you saw it, but I don't remember a lot of people arguing about that method at the time. It was kind of almost, oh, okay, that's the way you do it. Well, I think there was there was a bit of pushback. I think um, you know some of the the town officials, especially even the Dennis Finance Committee, came out at, at one point and recommended against the school simply because of the approval method. Um, okay. They said that you know it's tradition; it's always been done this way. That that every time there's been a major capital project for DY, that it's gone through town meeting for approval. Um, there are other instances of, of local um, projects being approved. For instance, Cape Tech, uh, which was approved in. Um, I think 2017 the vote mm -hmm. went through to approve that school and that used this method that the, the DY school committee used as well. What Yarmouth has said though is that that's not typical for a two town district where the regional agreement actually specifies that we should have a town meeting vote. Um, however, Dennis attorneys did come out and, and sort of put forward their opinion on this. They wrote a letter to the school board um, on January 28th that says, in their opinion, they don't really think Yarmouth has a leg to stand on. Um, there's really no case law on this specific instance. This really hasn't happened before where, where a two-town district has used this clause to go forward and one town has tried to say, no, this isn't what we want. Um, so what Dennis attorneys did is they are referring to a 2012 letter from the Department of Education in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And the deputy commissioner then wrote saying that the department's interpretation of the law is sort of the way the school committee interpreted it. And that most likely uh, what Dennis attorneys are saying is that in the absence of case law on this case, that the that court would really go back to the department's interpretation and would likely support the school committee in this case and, and not Yarmouth's claim. Which is often the case with courts. They they generally will defer to the interpretation of an agency or which are, you know, considered the experts on uh, on kind of the policies and laws. Um, they're usually very involved in the creation of these laws and, and kind of looking at them and their impact on the agency because the agencies usually have to deal with them. But yeah, it was interesting to see that that letter and it, it basically it said that that one alternative was actually purposely put in there to eliminate the need for a town meeting votes to consider you know going into debt or uh, doing this approval um, when it can be done more efficiently mm -hmm. through a district-wide election. So uh, certainly it sounds like, um, again, and even Yarmouth's attorney has kind of said that he almost wishes he was on the other side in yes. arguing this yeah, case. Yeah, he said that when the, the idea came up for the lawsuit, he kind of said, you know, I'll file it if you want me to, but I'd rather be arguing the converse. So, yeah. um, and then really what's at odds here, what the big thing is this $44.3 million reimbursement from the state. Um, school officials did talk to the Massachusetts School Building Authority, which is the authority that would be issuing the reimbursement. They were originally told that even if there's a threat of the lawsuit, if, if the school district can't commit to the school by April 11th, um, that, that they wouldn't be able to get these funds. I did speak with school committee chair Jenny Landers, who said there's a chance that they would 
be given an extension based on a recent phone call that they had with the authority, um, but they'd need to demonstrate good cause that they were close to somehow Some sort of agreement, resolving which this. Which is, uh, it seems hard to believe that they would be able to resolve this because there's all sorts of other things attached to this, including kind of the regional formula for how they pay for the operational budget and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly it almost seems like Yarmouth could win even if they don't win the lawsuit in some ways. Uh, these officials who didn't want the school to go forward uh, could it, it could end up happening because that reimbursement wouldn't be available and without that reimbursement it really becomes you know uh, very difficult to, to consider moving forward with that project. Um, uh, another story this week, um, Cape Cod Hospital announced uh, uh, what they were calling a new era for cancer treatment um, and this is a uh, um, uh, basically a partnership with Dana-Farber, uh, um, which is known for their uh, treatment of cancer, and it, they've now become uh, the newest member of this Dana-Farber Cancer Care Collaborative. Um, uh, and so this, this is interesting because a, a lot of people here on the Cape uh, who are being treated for cancer go over the bridges and, and are, are going to hospitals. Boston is known, you know, as this place with, with great hospitals. Uh, and this uh, is... is seemingly uh, bringing some of that expertise here, uh, formalizes second opinion services with Dana-Farber and, and provides for a wider array of treatment that's available for, for uh, Cape patients. Um, again, as far as Cape Cod Hospital, Cape Cod Healthcare is the parent company there. This was a really big deal. They're the sixth hospital to join this collaborative since it started about three and a half years ago. Um, and, and again, they said this is really important. It was pretty amazing to me to see in uh, Cindy McCormick's reporting here uh, from uh, Michael Loff, who's the, the head of Cape Cod Healthcare, uh, that more than 30% of the Cape's population uh, who are basically receiving cancer treatment are receiving it off Cape. Um, and there are 22,000 cancer patients who are served by Cape Cod Healthcare, though, uh, uh, on the Cape annually, which is a, a somewhat staggering number yeah, in, in a lot, a lot of respects. Um, so you can see how this would be a, an important uh, thing to have happen. Um, Dana Farber said they put uh, the Cape Cod Hospital through a pretty rigorous uh, vetting process uh, to make sure that that the hospital met criteria for chemotherapy treatment, for nursing, pharmaceutical care, and facilities management, uh, along with a lot of other things. So for these two groups, and, and certainly for Cape Cod Hospital, it's a big deal. Anytime they can keep people here and keep them from going to Boston, A, it's certainly easier on the patients, but for Cape Cod Healthcare and Cape Cod Hospital, that's important. You want to be able to serve your your patients. So it seems like that's a that's a big story for them. And and uh, uh, Michael Loff actually also said that um, it's kind of just the beginning. That they have a lot of other announcements coming forward. So we'll see see what those are. Um, and then uh, seals. Have you seen any seals on beaches? I have not. No. What would you do if you did see a seal? I would do nothing. There you go. You're, you you don't even need to read this story, <laughs> but other folks might want to read this story. Or out maybe there. call the hotline if call, I call the hotline, the exactly, hotline if you were worried about it. Um, there were a number of calls, uh, I think, uh, in, in recent days, the last week or so, about seals uh, up on beaches, up on ice, which we had. It's warmed up, but we had uh, a lot of places that were frozen in. Um, I remember Cape Cod Bay seeing it, it frozen in pretty good, which happens uh, from time to time. And these seals were coming up on the ice, uh, and folks were calling police, calling, you know, uh, to, saying they were worried about the seals. Uh, folks who are experts here, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, based out of Yarmouth Port, um, and uh, the New England Aquarium also issued, they actually put out a Facebook post that referred back to something they had uh, put up, I think, last year or, or years before uh, that said, listen, this isn't 
abnormal. The, it, this is the time of year sometimes for younger seals in particular to come out of the water. Um, they may be coming out of the water during stormy periods where their, their normal haul outs aren't available. Um, we obviously have a lot of seals around here, up to 50,000 uh, uh, come to the Cape uh, at this point, uh, and that number's really increased over the years. But really they say the biggest problem is actually people disturbing the seals. They're they're trying to rest. They're they're stressed out to begin with, maybe a little bit, and they're up on the ice trying to rest. We have a we had a photo on the front. That seal didn't look stressed out. It's an me. adorable photo. <laughs> it was a very nice uh, position for that seal. He seemed to be just kind of laying there on the ice, basking in the sun. Um, but they say they're trying to rest. Rest. If you have concerns, there is a hotline that to call. I even uh, give the number here. It's five zero eight seven four three nine five four eight that you can call for the IFAS uh, Marine Mammal Rescue and Research Team. Um, but they say don't don't bother them. Uh, they did check on a few of these earlier in the week. One actually did have a, a laceration, and they said they'd go back and check on that one from time to time. Another one was just chilling out as our headline said and and the the third uh they couldn't find so they were going to just check back and make sure that one was okay but there are a lot of seals out there no need to, and they have teeth too and yes. and uh you know, certainly they look cute but but could uh Fierce. could bite you um uh you had a story in today's paper uh and and there was another story by reporter jeff spillane um why don't we start with yours there's a, a new facility in yarmouth uh, for officers who are training what's what's it for yes so this is uh sort of the first phase of what is expected to be a 1.2 million dollar training complex on the grounds of the yarmouth police department that's named uh in memory of sergeant sean gannon who was shot and killed last april um this facility is going to be paid for entirely by donated funds uh, that go through the Yarmouth Police, Police Foundation. Um, this being the first day is this training simulator. It's called a Milo Range Simulator. And what it does is it offers uh, police a chance to run through about 850 different scenarios um, uh, based on, uh, you know, things that could happen, things that could occur, you know, everyday sort of things such as traffic stops or domestic disturbances, all the way up to something that, you know, is, is hopefully much more rare, like a mass shooting. Um, and it, what it is, is it's a trainer tra simulator in the a basement room. It used to be a storage room at, that they sort of um, put some um, mat flooring down on and uh, painted the room and put up this big giant uh, projection screen. Mm -hmm. And the simulator plays video of these simulate of these different situations the officer said they try to make them as real to life as possible they can turn on flashing lights to sort of mimic uh conditions out on the road they can dim the lights so that officers can only illuminate the screen with a flashlight which would often be the case if they're searching a building dark, yeah. um you know the uh Kevin, uh, Lieutenant Kevin Lennon, who I spoke with there, said he plans to even put some obstacles in the room. To I simulate. thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Like put physical obstacles in the room. You have the the screen and the simulation, but then he's going to put things in there to kind of make it a, a little more realistic even than that. Which yeah. Is, and the idea is that all these things add up um, to creating more and more of an increased stress level for an officer, which, you know, at first it, that seems kind of harsh, but it's that's the goal. They want yeah. them to go through these stressful situations um, under the watch of trainers. Um, so the, the officers are told to react to the situation based on what they would do out on the road, to give the same okay. commands that they would give out on the road, and 
to choose that use of force that would be appropriate given the situation. Um, as this is happening, the, the person who's controlling, the trainer who's controlling the program can direct it to do different things. So for example, a suspect might be told um, to comply with the officer um, or to flee the scene or to you know draw a weapon. Draw a weapon. And the officer would then need to say, well, what's the appropriate level of force to use here? They have these simulated weapons in the room. First of all, before the officers go into this room, they have to lock away any firearms outside of the room in a, in a locked, secured container um, so that when they come inside, there's sort of no confusion over what's a live weapon. There's no Very live important. weapons being fired yeah, here. Um, and you, don't wanna, you also don't want to obviously walk away by accident with a simulated gun, so I assume there's a control there exactly. as well. Exactly. And these simulated guns are actually made to the same specifications. Um, the one that they were using at the time when they demoed this program for us was a simulated 9mm. It's the same weight, the same specifications, but it's equipped with a laser instead of bullets so that when um, you know the officer fires at the screen, they can detect whether he's made made a shot or whether he's yep. missed, and they can sort of correct as needed. Mm -hmm. um, the officers can choose the use of force ranging from pepper spray to um, a stun gun to an actual firearm, simulated firearm, um, and then th the, this whole thing is videotaped. So the instructors can go okay. back through, talk about this with the officers. They said, you know, if, we, if they're going to make mistakes, we want them to make them here so we can review it and correct it and address it here. And also having it there in the building uh, is important because A, they don't have to travel anywhere else to do it. And they can also, as you mentioned in the story, kind of do it during their shift, mm -hmm. which again, I thought was interesting uh, for, for one thing, it obviously it saves money and saves time and everything like that uh, and doesn't disrupt the, the shift as much, um, but also kind of has them do it at a time that they would actually be potentially in that situation, which, mm -hmm. so if you were in a midnight to eight shift or something, you might be practicing at seven in the morning, which may be in a, a time when you would run into a situation like this. So it's really adding to that level of realism, which I think tends to be a trend recently. I know with, with schools responding to mass shootings, um, I know recently through the Alice training and other things like that, they're trying to make those drills much more realistic because the idea is you prepare for it in a realistic way. Um, and again, the lights was a good example that you used, the blue and red lights, because when they pull over the car, their blue and red lights are flashing, obviously, to um, you know draw attention to people who are driving by so that they don't run into the cruiser or, or have something like that happen. But those can be really distracting to me, driving by, they can be almost blinding the officer maybe in the mm -hmm. same situation as well. Just for just for me, even having the conversation with Lieutenant Lennon, he had turned on the lights and then there was a, a stun gun training going on in a, a room next door. And between the noise and the lights, I was even having a hard time just focusing on what he was saying. So understanding that these people are having to make split-second decisions, really important decisions with all these distractions, it's certainly important that they have a place to train to be able to do that. And the plus is that the, the department, the Armed Police Department is planning to make this available to other police departments throughout the region who can come and use this facility so they won't have to maybe travel as far. And that, that larger facility is going to have other things involved with it as well. Yes, there'll be a mock house outside of, of uh, sort of in, on some land in back of the station. There'll be a mock house, an obstacle course that can be used by canine units, by SWAT teams for training there. And there's also going to be a contained shooting range, which will be sort of in a, a bulletproof, soundproof trailer. And that's the only place where live rounds or will be fired at any time. And again, this all comes obviously in the aftermath of uh, uh, Sergeant Sean Gannon's shooting and killing. Um, and 
and but but you know uh, Yarmouth Police Chief Frank Fredrickson was before that pushing for more uh, training funds, more money to be put towards training. There was a recent law passed that uh, did uh, allow for more money to be taken from car rentals. Uh, actually, there's a, a dollar or something like that that's put on car rentals to be going towards more training. Um, there's also an effort under uh, underway on the Cape to uh, open up a, a police academy, um, which is different from from this in some respects. But um, you can see the two, you know, kind of interacting. But they say they're not necessarily directly tied to each other. Correct. Yes, I think this um, Yarmouth is is entirely privately funded, whereas um, the police academy seems like it would be more of a, a public thing where officers would get their initial training. Um, and then, you know, when they're initially hired by a department, Yarmouth is more geared toward that, like, ongoing on-the-job training. Yeah. And so that, that uh, police academy idea, also uh, there was some news this week from that. The Barnesville County Commission uh, on Wednesday uh, uh, voted to include $50,000 as startup funds for that academy. Um, this is being proposed and, and really championed by a former Yarmouth police mm -hmm. chief, Peter Carnes. Um, he was also the former uh, chief of police at uh, Stonehill College, and Wayne Sampson, who was the former executive director of the Massachusetts Chiefs of Police Association, both live on the Cape. Um, and these guys look at this region and have heard, uh, I'm sure, and, and seen themselves uh, that it's a region where they're to, to, again, go through the police academy, you have to send people off Cape, they have to go off Cape, they have to uh, pay money for travel, food, everything like that. They saw the need here on the Cape, and, and other uh, police chiefs have said there's a, a really big need uh, to have uh, something that you can do here on the Cape so that you're not having to send people uh, off Cape. And then often they, they even say that they may have some officers who uh, will go through the police academy ostensibly you know, to join a, a Cape police department um, and then decide to then go somewhere else and and they're hoping that by having the police academy here or the ability to do the police academy here that they'll maybe stick around um they're looking at it's a lot of the details still need to be kind of worked out um but one of the things that they're talking about is having a trainer of trainers uh program happen at the Armouth police department um but they're also uh working with cape cod community college for potentially uh, to have the kind of classroom uh uh settings uh for uh the police academy and then joint base cape cod for some of the more active training that goes on, um, akin to kind of what Yarmouth's doing, but more in, in the realm of, again, a police academy training that would be pretty substantial. There are already uh, trainings for the military that go on out there at Joint Base Cape Cod uh, that kind of lend themselves to that idea. So uh, a lot of uh, work to be done, but it would be um, an 18-week academy class. It would be limited to about 40 students, um, and they say they could start it up pretty quickly. It would be about $3,000 uh, for a student who's enrolled through a local police department or $3,500 for somebody who's self-sponsored, um, but they're really expecting to maybe get going this spring, I think, is mm -hmm. what they're talking about. So two two different things uh, in some ways, but very related in terms of uh, bringing uh, more training facilities uh, here to the Cape and more training opportunities for local police departments. Uh, so we'll continue to follow uh, both those. Uh, and, and again, your story uh, today and Jeff's story, but your story uh, really gives you an idea of what it's like to be in that training facility. It starts off with one of those scenarios that you discussed, which was uh, really, again, telling in terms of what it's like to, to train for these sorts of things. Um, Taking a quick look ahead, uh, uh, reporter Doug Frazier is working on a story about a resurgence in the bald eagle population here on the Cape. Have you seen one yet? 
Yeah, yeah. I feel like I want to go hang out and just look for bald eagles. That would be really a, a nice day. Um, they they have uh, made a comeback, um, but they're still waiting to kind of get uh, some of the hard evidence that they're nesting here. And so uh, Doug talked to some experts, and we'll have that story in the next couple of days. Uh, feel free to look uh, forward to that. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you again, Kristen, for uh, covering uh, all things DY and, and Yarmouth Police uh, related. Uh, please tell your friends, share the link. Uh, feel free to reach out with any story, tips, or ideas. All our emails, including Kristen's, are at capecodtimes.com, where, where news starts on Cape Cod. Uh, thank you again. And until next week, have a good morning and good luck. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.